Hello, and welcome to this edition of the American Thoracic Society's Sleep and Respiratory Neurobiology Assembly podcast. Today, we'll be discussing the surgical approach to obstructive sleep apnea, a 2019 update. I'm Rob Stansberry, member of the SRN Assembly's Web Committee and Associate Professor in the section of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at West Virginia University. Today, I'm glad to welcome two leaders in the field of sleep medicine, Dr. Eric Kazarian and Dr. Ed Weaver. Dr. Kazarian is Vice Chair and Professor of Sleep Medicine at the University of Southern California's Caruso Department of Otolaryngology. He is a leader in the surgical treatment of snoring and obstructive sleep apnea and was the president of the International Surgical Sleep Society. His research focuses on procedure selection for upper airway obstruction, surgical outcomes, and the development of new surgical techniques and novel therapies for obstructive sleep apnea. Dr. Weaver is Professor of Otolaryngology at the University of Washington and Chief of Sleep Surgery. He also serves as co-director of the UW Medicine Sleep Center. He provides comprehensive surgical care of snoring and sleep apnea and has a research program focused on clinical epidemiology and outcomes in sleep apnea. Dr. Kazarian and Dr. Weaver, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, To start, I would like to frame sort of the historical and current management paradigm for adults with obstructive sleep apnea. At least historically, a usual approach involved a diagnostic sleep study followed by a a trial of positive airway pressure therapy. Alternative therapies were normally not discussed or initiated until PAP therapy had failed in, in many instances multiple times, and little was really done to personalized obstructive sleep apnea treatment, and many patients were likely lost to follow-up after CPAP failure. With our increased recognition of obstructive sleep apnea, heterogeneity, and clinical and physiologic phenotyping, as well as the understanding that DHI is perhaps not the most effective way to cohort individuals, the field is really primed to make progress towards precision medicine and the management of sleep-disordered breathing. What role do you see for surgery in the management of sleep apnea as we move into an era of personalized medicine? For instance, can we predict who would do particularly well with surgery and suggest that they may pursue a surgical intervention as initial management for obstructive sleep apnea? Dr. Weaver, I'll give you first crack at that question. Uh, Thank you, Rob. Yes, I see a major role for um, surgery and surgeons to be involved in personalized or precision medicine for obstructive sleep apnea. In uh, today's academic environment, there's a lot of emphasis on phenotyping of various types, physiologic phenotyping, for example. Um, But I think the most important phenotype, long known, is anatomic phenotyping. We as surgeons uh, make that a routine part of our evaluation because it dictates what exactly we might do for surgery. And so um, as we think about personalizing for individual patients, even that anatomic phenotyping has an important, really a critically important role, especially when we get to the alternative treatments beyond CPAP. As an example, a simple example, large tonsils do very well with surgery. Uh, Cure rates, meaning no sleep apnea left, AHI less than five uh, is greater than 50%, and and success by common parameters is greater than 80%. So that's a simple example of um, um, just teasing out the evaluation of whether they have large tonsils um, can help tailor therapy or, or um, triage therapy uh, in an optimal way. And there are other examples, too. Dr. Kazarian, anything to add? Well, I think that I echo what uh, Ed has said in that this is an exciting time for sleep apnea therapy in general. 
I think when we weigh risks and benefits across all treatments for obstructive sleep apnea, I think positive airway pressure therapy clearly still has the preponderance of evidence and support. And I think for those patients who do not tolerate it well, the era from 15 plus years ago of having one procedure for everyone with sleep apnea just hoping for the best is really a bygone era. And I think that this anatomic phenotyping and really what we've done as surgeons is try to advance our ability to select procedures. And I think that as we enter this era of precision medicine and perhaps the physiologic phenotyping in combination with what we're doing as surgeons with anatomic characterization, I think that outcomes would improve for surgery. And really, instead of just saying that surgery is a lost cause because, you know, one, hearkening back to the era of one procedure for everyone, I think that we may be able to identify ideal surgical candidates even more precisely and improve the results that we see with surgery, making those patients who are often lost to follow-up after CPAP failure, really bringing them back in the fold and enhancing their outcomes. You both mentioned this anatomic phenotyping, and one thing I've been interested in and a question I've had is I think most sleep physicians are familiar with the role of drug-induced sleep endoscopy in determining candidacy for hypoglossal nerve stimulation, but is uh, DICE playing any uh, further role in surgical planning? Um, Any data suggesting that there's better identification of surgical targets or improving outcomes um, with surgical interventions when you're in preoperatively evaluating these patients with drug-induced sleep endoscopy. I'll uh, let Dr. Kazarian start with that. Rob, thank you for raising that. I think that hypoglossal nerve stimulation has certainly broadened the performance of drug-induced sleep endoscopy because now there are so many centers where it's a required part of the selection and preoperative evaluation in those patients considering hypoglossal nerve stimulation. But we've been fortunate to lead it now in our second major multi-center effort involving big centers from multiple countries, not just the United States, really looking in a more detailed and scientifically rigorous way at what we learned from drug-induced sleep endoscopy, not just for hypoglossal nerve stimulation, but really actually the first study was in procedures other than hypoglossal nerve stimulation. And this came out of a research conference coordinated around the International Surgical Sleep Society meeting in 2014. And last year, we published the results showing that for other procedures, it really does actually counsel us, actually play a role in counseling patients that might not do as well with the procedures. For example, if they have collapse of the sides of the throat, what are called the lateral walls. But going beyond that, we really have shown with that study that it seems like those, for example, who have tongue-related obstruction, the tongue falling back to block their breathing, if you do isolated soft palate surgery, they don't seem to do quite as well. And there are no absolutes, of course, but it's something that there are, with larger numbers accrued across multiple centers, we're able to show some findings that can help guide us in using this evaluation technique in the selection of other procedures. And what we've recently presented at the American Academy of Otolaryngology meeting this year was the initial results from a similar multi-center study looking at what we learned from drug-induced sleep endoscopy and how that can inform us with hypoglossal nerve stimulation about outcomes. For example, right now we have the use of drug-induced sleep endoscopy to exclude the one-third of patients or so that have this pattern called complete concentric collapse related to the soft palate. 
a certain kind of airway obstruction that occurs up high in the throat related to the soft palate. But in fact, the idea behind this is that if, for example, you could tell some patients that based on your drug into sleep endoscopy, you might have a 90% chance of responding versus a 50% response rate, that might be useful information. Because right now we have all this information coming from drug into sleep endoscopy, and we really we're just scratching the surface. So we're collecting some additional uh, study participants to increase our sample size and allow us to really tease out some of the findings that might be gleaned from drug induced sleep endoscopy and their association with outcomes. But this is absolutely what is at the right now the forefront of the anatomic phenotyping. Very interesting to hear. Uh, Dr. Weaver, any follow-up to um, use of drug induced sleep endoscopy? Yeah, um, I agree with Eric. It's um, I think the hypoglossal nerve stimulator phenomenon has brought attention to this um, method of evaluation. It's been around for almost three decades, but this has brought a lot of attention to it to non-surgeons. There's a lot of experience with it in trying to basically assess the sleep airway as opposed to just assess the awake airway um, because the treatment really needs to address the sleep airway. And so um, Eric's leading the way on trying to, de trying to help define what findings on drug-induced sleep endoscopy will predict outcomes. It hasn't been as readily forthcoming as people kind of assumed it would be, so Eric putting together this large cohort is really important to help tease that out. I'd like to take a second, though, to just kind of highlight key facets or features about drug-induced sleep endoscopy just for listeners to be aware because um, people hear the term and may not know kind of the pros and cons of it. It's still a controversial topic because not all sleep surgeons, even well uh, experienced sleep surgeons, use it because of inherent challenges with it. It's not natural sleep, it's drug-induced sleep. Um, the dosing and which anesthetic is used is still somewhat controversial and being studied actively. It provides a snapshot, so usually it's a matter of, you know, a few minutes to several minutes of evaluation as opposed to a whole night. There's an instrument in the airway. So there's, there's a lot of challenges to try to still work through, and that's why I think Eric's alluding to we're kind of on the cusp of trying to really maximize what this method can give us. But with that, it has, a, it has a variety of roles. I mean, just help us formulate a surgery plan, help us tailor a specific surgery, getting into the nuances of technical techniques, um, anticipate failures, predict outcomes, as Eric was alluding to. So, yeah, it's an exciting uh, part of the evaluation. Lastly, I'd like to highlight, though, there's more to evaluating the um, phenotyping and, and even specifically the anatomic and airway phenotyping than just drug-induced sleep endoscopy. People shouldn't assume that, that it's uh, mandatory or uh, required in order to do any kind of assessment. And so um, data going back decades actually shows that anatomic analysis, even before DICE was regularly used, was predictive of outcome of a number of surgical procedures. So or at least partly predictive. So, um, um, yeah, it's an, exciting, it's an exciting arena, though, for the evaluation and, and trying to tease out when to do which procedure uh, and what to expect from them. Looking forward to Eric's work. It has been a group effort, a lot of people putting a lot of time into it, and I think that it's uh, the desire of so many people to move things forward. And I want to echo what Ed said again in terms of this is really just a part of the assessment, even those people who are the strongest proponents of drug-induced sleep endoscopy. And I'm, I'm not necessarily the strongest proponent of it. I think it offers some very useful information. 
but I think that in isolation, nothing is really providing the answer, which is why there was so much that was learned well before drug-induced sleep became more common. And I think that this is just one additional uh, type of information that can be helpful, of course, with absolutely all those indications that, sorry, all those limitations that Ed mentioned. And to follow up, I mean, it seems like a lot of you're doing a lot of great work in um, drug-induced sleep endoscopy. What do you, both of you, see as significant knowledge gaps currently in the surgical approach to sleep apnea, and what research is needed uh, to really address these gaps? Dr. Weaver, I'll um, ask you to respond first. Rob, there are no gaps. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, I think one of them is... Um, a big one is the research on surgical treatments for sleep apnea are all, almost all based on isolated procedures. Yet in clinical practice, we rarely do isolated procedures. Sometimes we do combined procedures or sometimes we do staged procedures. So it's, it's uncommon in adult sleep apnea that's one isolated anatomic problem that needs to be addressed. And so that translates then into a bit of a misinterpretation, I think, of the role of surgery because an isolated palate surgery, for example, doesn't cure sleep apnea in most patients. But when you think about it, you wouldn't expect it to when there's other things going on. And so I think a, a really key gap and an area that um, is just, I think, also on the cusp of getting um, more data and more rigorous data is looking at multi-level surgery as well as stage surgery rather than isolated procedures. Now, that's a challenge because uh, isolated procedures are easier to control uh, in a study design. But when it doesn't reflect the clinical reality, it's easy to kind of misinterpret what the role of surgery might be. And then there's a bunch of others. I'll, I'll highlight one other, which is um, you alluded to it early on, that, that um, you know, apnea abopneonix, um we now understand has um, some key limitations. And and I would raise what's, you know, what measure, what is the best physiologic measure, at least, that we should use? And I, I'm a strong believer that we should use clinical measures, but um, what physiologic measure? And because apnea apopneonics has turned out to be not a very good surrogate, I think largely because it's, it's the ultimate in data reduction. We take all this data from a full night polysonography and we reduce it down to one summary number that includes everything from long, deep desaturating apneas to short, probably clinically unimportant hypopneas and everything in between into one number. And so one of the areas I'm really excited about, I don't do this kind of research, but I'm excited about it, is people using machine learning to glean important signal and information from the massive data that exists in, in any given polysonography to see if we can tease out better measures that will be more helpful in understanding um, the disorder and what we're doing when we treat the disorder. So those are a couple, a couple of major gaps um, in the field that I think um, uh, will help the field overall and, and, and help us assess surgical outcomes for sleep apnea. Dr. Kazarian, any follow-up to that? Well, I'm really excited about the work that's happened over many years now in physiologic phenotyping. I think that as surgeons, we are primarily treating you know, airway collapsibility, anatomic abnormalities, but complementing that and understanding what we see clinically all the time in that anatomically patients can have wide open airways, yet they still have significant obstructive sleep apnea, it appears clear that there's other important physiologic factors or pathophysiologic factors playing a role in their obstructive sleep apnea. And certainly uh, 
you know, combining these modalities, medications, oxygen, of course, the recent presentation earlier this year with medications alone having such you know, in intriguing outcomes in sleep apnea uh, treatment, but combining a medication with surgery to address multiple uh, areas of pathophysiology can, again, enhance the results of surgery and make it a much more viable option and really make me a better surgeon, to be honest. And to, and to follow up on that, you know, one area that I, I see is fairly underutilized in the management of obstructive sleep apnea is actually multimodality therapy. Uh, for instance, I had a patient uh, in clinic yesterday who struggled with CPAP, and I sent him to our uh, sleep surgeon, and following a turbinate reduction, now he's having, you know, really great success with PAP therapy. So I guess um, with my question would be, what role can surgery play in this multi-modality approach? And are there, can you think of specific instances where surgery combined with uh, another treatment modality can really improve uh, patient outcomes? Um, Dr. Gazarian, I'll ask you to start with the response to that question. Well, absolutely. Ed's actually been a, a real leader in turbinate treatment to enhance positive airway pressure therapy adherence. There's a number of studies showing that a narrowed nasal airway can really compromise uh, the ability to tolerate positive pressure, and there are different approaches to treating that depending on the key factors contributing to nasal airway obstruction, but that certainly is the simplest approach of combining therapies. But combining surgery with oral appliances for patients who cannot tolerate positive airway pressure therapy, using surgery to decrease pressures required to maintain an open airway in those who have difficulty tolerating positive pressure because of high pressures. There are all sorts of ways that these combinations can be used, positional therapy, of course, as well. And I think we're just beginning to scratch the surface of what actually has been used clinically for a long time but is really only being studied a little bit more in various ways over many years. But, but some of the unique and, and uh, ways to combine these therapies is being examined a little bit more recently. Dr. Weaver, any follow-up? Yeah, um, I think the nasal example, um, as you alluded to, Rob, is a is a perfect example of you know prospective multimodal therapy where um, patients having trouble with the CPAP and, and treating the nose with the plan that it's going to facilitate CPAP. Eric highlighted it's not just CPAP therapy where surgery might have a complementary role, but any of those other therapies, and I think that's a really important message uh, also. Um, so when the CPAP is not successful and we're looking at any variety of alternatives, uh, keeping in mind combined, combining alternatives is key. Um, I would also argue the other side of the equation, it's not just nasal surgery that can be helpful. Um, in fact, there's multiple surgical procedures that can be helpful to complement CPAP therapy or these other therapies. There's, um, you know, even, even UPPP, it, uh, that's the case nowadays. You know, in the past, uh, palate surgery largely was excision or removal of part of the palate, and that did compromise people's tolerance to higher pressures on CPAP. But today's uh, palate surgery is not that. It's uh, more reconstructive and um, uh, doesn't reduce tolerance of CPAP. And, in fact, there's some data, to compelling data, to suggest that palate surgery or other uh, upper airway surgeries besides nasal surgery, can facilitate CPAP therapy. And I think that's a really important message because I know there's still a lot of concern in the sleep medicine community that um, surgery is going to make it so it's impossible to use CPAP later. And, and I think really today it's the reverse. 
I'll share an example, a specific example, because this is a patient I just recently saw in follow-up. Uh, this is a patient who had profound obstructive sleep apnea, AHI greater than 100, and they were all apneas, um, profound desaturation and hypoventilation. In fact, he had hypoventilation syndrome. And he was on BiPAP, maximum pressure, 25 over 15 centimeters of water pressure, and still had an AHI over 30, obstructive AHI over 30, um, and profound fatigue. And my sleep medicine colleague referred him to me to facilitate CPAP, and I did multi-level surgery. A nasal surgery alone wasn't going to get around the problem. He had large tonsils, a huge tongue, and so forth. So I did like four or five different procedures all at once, and it was successful. He's still on BiPAP, of course. He's on 22 over 13 centimeters, but now his HI is 1. His fatigue is a 0 out of 10, and the patient is one of those, you know, changed my life type of patients that, that you all see with BiPAP or PAP patients, you know, in a subset of them. This was one who was a complete failure, even though he was using it, and now is complete success. And so that's just an illustration of nasal surgery is a simple example, but sometimes it's complicated surgery can also be used in a multimodal way. And I would, I'd make one last comment is um, we surgeons have kind of been forced to be thinking multimodality forever because we rarely get cure with our surgeries. And so we're always thinking of ways, how can we enhance the effect? Okay, we improved the sleep apnea partly, um, but now there's just residual positional apnea. Let's add positional therapy. Or now the oral plants, which wasn't working before, and now might work that we've had part effect with um, surgery. So, so I think this is a major role for surgery is in this multimodal approach. And I think that's true of all of our therapies. I think um, more and more we're combining these uh, different modes of therapy for the benefit patients achieving really optimal outcomes. I think I, I think that one's a key. I completely agree. Uh, I've seen a lot of success in involving our surgeon in the management of many of our patients. Really led to some good outcomes. Non-surgeon myself, any important considerations that I should have as I'm look, looking at a patient, thinking I'm going to refer this patient to our surgeon to you know help with the management of obstructive sleep apnea. Is there any absolute? Tr- contraindications um, to that referral? Do you guys get a lot of referrals and say, hey, I wish I had this data or things that you need, um, you know, when we're thinking about referring patients for surgical assessment? Uh, Dr. Weber, I'll start with you. Yeah, this is um, uh, one of the topics I discuss in detail with the sleep medicine fellows that spend time with me in our fellowship program because opening that door to what role surgery might have to help them with their patients, I think is really important. I'd say the first one is sleep medicine physicians should really consider surgery as an option in any patient who's not benefiting adequately from CPAP. It's helpful if the, if the sleep medicine physician has a goal in mind, just in line with what we were just talking about. Is it as an adjunct or is the goal really to replace CPAP because the chance of succeeding with CPAP is, is too low? In, you know, in selected patients. I think it's really important for them to have realistic expectations. I think that's been a bane of the sleep surgeon existence where when we don't get cure, people sort of feel like that was a failure. I start my conversation with patients that we are unlikely to cure the sleep apnea, but in the face of no treatment in a patient who really can't use CPAP or other alternatives aren't good options, the comparison isn't cure, the comparison is no treatment. And so, you know, getting improvement that's meaningful to the person and worthwhile to the person 
is really important. And so in having that sort of realistic expectation that we're not necessarily aiming for, well, we're aiming for cure, but we're not necessarily expecting cure, I think is a really important concept to keep in mind because that'll help open the doors to maybe we should consider surgery. And then to get specific, I have a couple of specifics. One is the patient needs to be willing to consider surgery. So referring a patient for surgery evaluation and there's no way they're going to consider surgery, I think it's not a good use of their time and energy. And so having that conversation I think is worthwhile. And then I would say is a very concrete one, patients who are very obese and people can debate the cutoff on what that would be, but I would say as a rule of thumb, body mass index greater than 40, it's very unlikely that upper airway surgery is going to be a solution in place of CPAP. And in those patients, I would go directly to a bariatric surgery referral where that can have a, a, a real improvement in the sleep apnea or in the tolerance of uh, other or co- combined with other therapies. So those are, those are some specific um, thoughts. And what I have found is as sleep medicine physicians discover what role surgery might have with realistic expectations, it kind of opens up an opportunity for them to take care of some patients who otherwise might have been left um, untreated or inadequately treated, but not to say that we're going to successfully manage all those patients, but there's a subset where surgery can really, um, really be helpful. Dr. Kazarian, any thoughts or things to add on referrals for sleep surgery and things non-surgeon sleep medicine providers who are non-surgeons should consider? Sure. The only thing that uh, I might add is that as surgeons, we, we need to think uh, like other practitioners. So whether it's, you know, sleep medicine physician, somebody prescribing positive pressure, a dentist thinking about an oral appliance, for example, if somebody doesn't have teeth, you wouldn't send them over for an oral appliance, uh, or at least not a mandibular repositioning appliance of the standard variety. But I think I would never expect uh, sleep medicine providers to understand what procedures might be best for certain patients that uh, being be reasonable expectations. But what I what is helpful sometimes is uh, referrals for people who have unstable, significant medical problems that I, uh, over the years, few different places I've received those referrals and so that it's going to be difficult for those patients to undergo any procedure and so they have to be potentially interested in surgery and then having some measure of safety of course the anesthesia is getting safer and safer but you know having some measure of safety for undergoing general anesthesia in a procedure especially if we're talking about some of the uh, pharyngeal procedures that are not always trivial during the recovery period. Hypoglossal nerve stimulation does have a milder recovery involved, but still it's general anesthesia for a couple hours. It's something that's not uh, so straightforward for someone with unstable medical problems. To finish up, I'd just ask you both for any final thoughts or any new or novel treatments that you wanted to mention or in the pipeline, Um, anything to summarize the discussion today. Dr. Kazarian, I'll start with you. Well, uh, over my entire career, I've seen a lot of enthusiasm for people looking at treatments for both actually obstructive sleep apnea and for snoring. And the the flip side of that is that nothing has worked perfectly. And in general, of course, obstructive sleep apnea is a heterogeneous disorder so that you would never expect something to work universally for everybody for different reasons. And as, as far as new treatments that are out there or in the pipeline, there certainly are other technologies for hypoglossal nerve stimulation, delivering it in different ways than the current one that's available in the United States. But there are other approaches treating the tongue, uh, treating the soft palate with sutures, 
stimulation of muscles in other ways. And they're in various stages of development, but I think that uh, broadening our concept of how procedures may work with the pathophysiology and the different factors playing a role will only enhance the results of these and will identify some of those gaps that really need to be filled with therapies that offer greater benefit with lower risks. Dr. Weaver. Yeah, I have um, uh, a few thoughts. I agree completely with Eric's uh, point about the heterogeneity and the challenge of coming up, the, the enthusiasm for, but the challenge of coming up with a silver bullet. You know, I would I would state that some of the novel stuff is really incremental stuff that uh, enhances or improves on something that already exists. So I mentioned earlier about palate surgery. You know, modern-day palate surgery is very different than it was 25 years ago and has really improved what we can do and has improved our ability to collaborate with um, sleep medicine to use CPAP after UPPP as an example of a bunch of incremental steps. Eric mentioned hypoglossal nerve simulator. There's um, sort of newer versions coming along that will be incremental steps. So I think that's that's important to recognize and accept as important steps forward. And then in terms of sort of just general broad thoughts, I guess I have two. Uh, one is um, for, for a general sleep medicine audience especially is um, there are many, many surgical techniques and variations of techniques to address the highly variable anatomy phenotyping that we see. And I think that's not necessarily universally understood. Um, I think there's still a sense that there's, you know, a UPPP and, and hypoglossal nerve stimulator now, and that's it. And really, even UPPP is multiple different potential procedures, and there's tongue procedures and laryngeal procedures and nasal and, and multi-level procedures. So there's a wide array. Uh, as Eric mentioned earlier, I don't think it should be on the sleep medicine physician to understand which procedure should be done in which patient, but rather I would encourage sleep medicine physicians just to try to form a relationship with a thoughtful and collaborative surgeon. And I predict the sleep medicine physicians who are able to find um, such a surgeon will, will find a really fruitful collaboration to help their patients. So we, we were speaking before uh, we started this podcast, been really blessed to have a you know really great sleep surgeon to collaborate with, and it really makes a world of difference in my practice. So it's really important to develop that relationship. I completely agree. Well, I would really like to thank Dr. Weaver and Dr. Kazarian for a great discussion and I appreciate them taking the time to participate in this podcast. And thank you for listening to this podcast of the ATS SRN Assembly.